may be seated. Genesis 6 this morning. And we'll be in verses 9 through 22. This last week, as many of you know, was the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. 22 years ago, we're all familiar with what happened that day. I wouldn't be surprised if there's someone here who are unaware of another storyline of what happened on that day You may not realize that there were 500,000 people on 9-11 that were saved by boat that day. Imagine being in that that city when the second plane hit the towers. And of course, with even more chaos, when the towers came collapsing to the ground. If you lived in Manhattan and you saw not just one, but two attacks you probably would have been asking yourself, is there going to be another one? Are bombs going to start falling from the sky? And of course, you all have seen the footage. You've seen how, especially after the collapsing of the towers, the entire city was filled with black, toxic smoke. I mean, if you stayed outdoors for any length of time, you were destined to be plagued with disease or even death. And because the city had shut down the bridges and the roads because of security reasons, they didn't know what was about to happen. They were trying to lock down the city and keep it under control. And the only way off the island then was by boat. One of the Coast Guard that was in the waters that day tells of how massive numbers of ferries and tugboats and even yachts that were out on the water that morning without any sort of distress signal. They just knew it intuitively that all of these boats needed to converge on Manhattan to get people away from ground zero and get them across the harbor to New Jersey. And it was because of the bravery and the selflessness of all the many different individuals that owned those boats that hundreds of thousands of people were saved from the effects of the smoke in the chaos that day. I don't know about you, I love rescue stories. Don't you? I love, because in some ways I often wonder if I would show the same heroism that some of these people showed. I love seeing people who out of love for just humanity, risk everything, put their lives on the line, not to mention the firefighters and others who did that that day so that they could spare the life of someone else who doesn't deserve to die because of the evil and the sin of another. I really think that boat rescue was was an amazing thing. But as we're entering Genesis 6, 7, and 8, we are entering the first boat rescue story in humanity's history. And it's just as glorious because 
In the midst of evil and death, much like 9-11, there is an evil humanity that had brought upon themselves death and condemnation and destruction. But God, because of his love and compassion toward humanity, because as Peter says, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, we see unfolding in our section this morning the beginning of God's rescue plan for humanity. I mentioned last time we were in Genesis that the days of destruction that God brought on, the hum- on humanity in the days of Noah are a precursor to the judgment that will come by Jesus Christ at his second coming. And so whether or not you consider yourself a religious person, whether or not you consider yourself a Christian, it's in your best interest this morning to consider God's rescue plan for humanity. Because just like in the days of Noah, they didn't see it coming. They didn't know they would need rescue, but Moses writes the account for us to somehow give us a picture of how we too can be saved from our own sin and from the judgment of God that is coming upon all of humanity. Our our text answers two questions for us today. How will God save us from judgment? And who will be saved from judgment? If you want to be saved from the judgment of God, our text unleashes those answers for us. If you want to know and you want to be assured that you are one who will be saved in that final day, our text shows us what it looks like, the character of somebody who will be saved. And we'll get into the story of the flood next week and the ark and all of that But before we get there, God is setting aside a section to introduce us to the people that he would save from this this destruction and why they would be saved, not the others. And with that consideration, let's read our text this morning. The words of our Lord in Genesis 6, verses 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold... I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. This is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits and the breadth of it 50 cubits and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side Thereof with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant 
and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind and cattle after their kind and of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten and thou shalt gather it to thee and it shall be food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. I want to address this passage with the second half first. In the second half of our passage, it answers the question, how will God save us from judgment? And really it's broken down into two answers. Two clues that tell us how God saved Noah and his family and how God will save you and I from the judgment that we all deserve for our sins. The first thing the text shows us is that God saves us by faith in his plan. God saves us by faith in his plan. Verses 13 through 17, they contrast two plans. A plan of destruction for the sinner and a plan of salvation for the faithful. The plan of destruction, of course, is the story of the flood. God says, I will destroy all the earth with a flood. Why? Because verse number 13, they deserved it. Verse 13, interestingly, it says that all flesh have corrupted their way on the earth. And then at the end of verse 13, God says, I will destroy them. Now in our Bibles, that's two different English words, but Moses was writing with two of the same words. Literally, here's what God is saying. They've corrupted their way on the earth, and so I will corrupt them. To give us the idea that this judgment was the natural consequence of their sinful corruption. That they deserved what was happening to them. And we know that the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin brings judgment upon us, but God also reveals a plan of salvation. And this plan is beginning to unfold in verse number 14, where God tells Noah to make an ark, a boat. And really, if you look at the dimensions of this boat, it's not your normal boat. It's kind of like a floating box, a barge, if you will. And it's huge. You ever heard of the Ark Encounter? I think it's in Tennessee or Kentucky or something like that. You can look it up on Google and they made a life-size replica of the dimensions that are prescribed in this section of verses. God told Noah to build a massive boat. 450 feet long. It is 50 feet high. That's taller than our church. 85 feet Wide, that's two and a half times wider than our auditorium. This thing is huge. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize that if you're a man in this era of history that does not have DeWalt power tools, Sid, you don't have planers, you don't have drill presses, and you don't have, you know, compressed gun nailers. You don't have any of that technology and you have to build a massive boat like this. It's going to take all of your resources, all of your savings, 
all of your time, not only all of your time, but Noah had to somehow convince his sons to make this thing happen because ain't no way one man's going to build a boat this size. So he had to somehow get his wife and his kids and their wives on board if he had any hope of building this thing. And it's no wonder that it took him a hundred years to build the thing. What we see in verses 14 through 17 is that this had to be an act of faith. Noah had to put everything on the line to obey this command from God. And not only did it take faith to build the ark, uh, hello, it would have taken faith to enter the ark. Just put yourself in the shoes, the sandals of Noah's wife that day. Ladies, let's be real. If your husband built a boat that was your only hope of not dying in a worldwide cataclysmic flood, I don't think my wife would trust my building skills. Here's some people who had faith that were trusting, not in the skills of Noah to build a boat, but notice how God never gives directions to build a steering wheel. This thing is just a floating vessel. It's basically a massive lifeboat, and it's just going to float on the surface of the waters, and it is entirely up to God to spare them. I mean, you could imagine the size of waves that were going to happen in this type of a flood, the types of things they could have bottomed out on. It took faith for them to believe in this plan, to obey this plan, and to enter into the ark and stay committed to this plan. And my friend, God's plan of salvation from the days of Noah to the days of Christ and the church is still the same. His rescue plan is that we are saved by faith in his plan. Acts 16, 31 tells it this way. As they're preaching the message of the gospel, what's the key operative word? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Listen, y'all, there, there was no such thing as a flood. This, this was new stuff. And so can you imagine how ridiculous Noah looked building what is one of the largest vessels for several thousand years of history in the middle of a dry climate of people? Do you realize how stupid Noah would have looked among his peers? Do you recognize how much he would have been mocked for what he was placing his faith and his trust in? And I, I wonder sometimes if it looks just as foolish and it feels just as crazy to stake your eternity, to stake life and death on a first century Jewish man whom we believed was raised from the dead. It, it takes faith to believe that. There's not any amount of evidence that I can conjure up for you that'll make salvation not happen by faith. It always takes faith to trust in Christ. But here, can I encourage you Christians? Can I encourage you doubters? Faith always looks silly now, but faith never looks silly on the day of judgment. Noah looked like a fool before the flood, but his faith was vindicated on the day of judgment. And my friend, you and I may feel like outcasts and fools. Your own family may mock you and think you're out of your mind for placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But my friend, on the day of judgment, you will not have a single regret for trusting in the finished work of Christ for your salvation. 
Hebrews 11 makes it clear that it was Noah's faith that saved him. By faith, Noah, warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. He had reverence toward God, and he prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. You know what faith is? Noah shows us that faith is acting now based on what we believe to be true later. I'm going to say that again. Faith is acting now based on what you believe to be true later. See, if Noah had just been thinking about the climate and the situation of his day right now, he would have never built a boat. But Noah believed what God said to be true later, and so he changed something about the now. Noah had irrational obedience to the clear commands of God. Can I just help you this morning? Faith is never placing your hope and your belief in a prospect of something vague. Faith is always obedience to the black and white commands of Scripture. God doesn't call you to place faith in anything other than his clear commands. And thank God he's given us a whole lot more revelation than he gave Noah. All he gave Noah was what we just read in verses 13 through 17. And by that, Noah was supposed to operate for 100 years building an ark based on one piece of God's revelation. But God calls you and I to act in faith now based on what we believe to be true about him later. Christian, I just want you to be encouraged by the faith of Noah. Because there's going to be times where it seems irrational, it seems foolish to obey the commands of God now because you're thinking about the now and you're not thinking about the later. Many people don't serve Christ generously and faithfully now because they don't believe he will richly reward obedience later. So many Christians never give God their finances now because they don't want to sacrifice now because they don't ultimately believe that there are treasures in heaven later. Faith forsakes sin now and the pleasure that sin brings now because we believe there will be a judgment on our lives later. What does faith do? It acts now based on what we believe to be true later. But here's how the second phase of God's rescue plan. God saves us, not by faith in his plan, not just by that, but he saves us through an unconditional covenant. Look at verses 18 through 21. If you've been with us in Sunday school, you recognize that this is a significant moment in the Bible. God says to, uh, to Noah in verse number 18, I will, with thee, I will establish my covenant. So what is he saying to Noah? He's contrasting a plan for Noah with his plan for humanity. Verse 13, God's plan for humanity was death. But in verse number 18, in contrast to that, what does God say? He says, with you, Noah, I'm going to establish a covenant. They are going to face destruction, but Noah, you are going to be blessed by a covenant, a promise, a contract with me. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise that has conditions for either one or both parties. This covenant seems to be unconditional, but it also seems to be based on the context, based on the fact that Noah already reverenced and walked with God. God was not entering into a covenant with some arbitrary person. He was entering into a covenant with somebody who was looking to him for their salvation. 
But notice that God is making a covenant with Noah, an individual, and because of his promise to an individual, God is blessing a group of people. Listen to the language. This is very important. Verse number 18, but with thee, singular, I will establish my covenant. Thou, singular, shalt come to the ark with thy sons and thy sons' wives and with thee, singular. Verse 19, two of everything you will bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. Verse 20, two of every short shall come unto thee. Chapter seven, verse number one is even more clear. It says in chapter seven, verse number one, come thou and all thy house in the ark. And why is God gonna save them? Because he has seen thee righteous, singular. What is verses 19 through 21 showing us? It's showing us that because of Noah as an individual, his righteousness, God was going to enter into a covenant with a singular righteous man and through that singular righteous man would bless all of those who were in relationship with that single man through this covenant. This is showing us that God's way of saving the world is through one righteous individual with whom God makes a covenant. My friend, Noah is not simply meant to point us to the righteousness that you and I should have as individuals. Noah is meant to point us to the greater righteousness and the greater promises and the greater salvation that would be given to us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of the same way that God established a covenant with Noah, God cuts a covenant with Jesus Christ. And the Bible calls it a new or a better covenant or testament. Look at Hebrews 7.22. It says, by so much was Jesus made a surety or a guarantor of a better testament or covenant. Look at chapter 8, verse 6 in Hebrews. It says about Jesus that he hath obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator a single person, of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Yes, there will be judgment coming to our world at the second coming of Christ, but our way to be spared by that judgment is entering into a relationship with the one who has an everlasting covenant with God the Father, the judge. Christ is the only way of salvation if God has determined that all have sinned and come short of, their, of his glory, how many of us can stand before God on the day of judgment? Paul says in Romans, is there any righteous? No, not one. Even the most righteous man or woman in here has nothing to give themselves credit before God on the day of judgment. On that day, if you and I will be saved, we will not be saved because of our own righteousness before God. We will be saved because of the righteousness of the one Jesus Christ who is in covenant with the ultimate judge. And it is because of the greater righteousness of Christ that we will be spared. 
That just like Noah's family and those animals, they were saved on behalf of Noah's righteousness. We on that day will be spared, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because we are followers and brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with him. And my friend, you may be saved this morning. You may have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and that's a wonderful thing. But this has something to say to you. Because the assurance of our salvation, the reason you and I can have assurance, we can know that we're saved. That we don't have to wonder and worry, am I saved or am I not? Because anytime someone doubts, mark it down. It's because they've stopped looking at Christ and started looking at themselves. And I'll talk in a minute how works are the evidence of faith. But let it be very clear that works do not affect your standing with God. Your standing with God is not based on your prayer that you made as a boy or a girl or an adult. Your standing with God is whether or not you are clinging to Christ who has the better covenant. And my friend, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are clinging to him, if you are following him as his disciple, there is no way God can say, depart from me, I never knew you, because he knew you through his son, Jesus. God saves us through an everlasting covenant. But here's the reality of the text. When somebody is in covenant with God, it changes them fundamentally. When someone is in a relationship with God, their life looks different. And their life bears witness to the relationship that was established through a covenant. I told you our text answers two questions. It answers how will we be saved, but it also tells us who will be saved. Who will be saved? Well, verses nine through 12 give us a portrait of a man who is preserved from God's judgment. And really in quick fashion, the author of Genesis 6 throws out a lot of characteristics about who Noah is. And he does that for a reason. He wants to show us who are the people that will be spared from this judgment. What does it look like for someone to be in covenant with God? What does that do to their lifestyle in a wicked and adulterous generation? Well, number one, they're righteous in God's sight. Look at verse number nine. It says that Noah was a just man. That word just is a legal judgment word. It is saying that in the, in the eyes of God, Noah was righteous and just. Now, how on earth can a man like Noah be declared righteous when he himself, as we'll see in chapter number nine, has sin within him? Well, I would think that he was declared righteous the same way Abraham was in Genesis 15, six, when it says Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Noah was a man who was judged righteous in God's eyes because he had faith in the Lord. But it also says that Noah was virtuous among his peers. Look at verse number nine. It says Noah was a just man and perfect 
in his generations. Now, that could be a misleading term because it doesn't mean Noah was sinless and perfect. The idea there is that Noah was blameless. He was, he was a cut above and I think the, the text is raising this question. Listen, can somebody be declared righteous by God and it not affect their life? Is God a fool to declare a man or a woman righteous who even amongst wicked peers does not appear righteous? Is God some sort of judge who makes a miscalculation? Well, no, it, it, it shows us that a man who is just righteous in God's sight will inevitably display righteous character among his society. We know what Noah's society was. His society, as we talked about two weeks ago, was sexually unhinged. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? His society was full of violence in verse number 11. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The thoughts of the hearts of men were only evil continually. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And I think what the New Testament authors, when they reflect on the life of Noah, what seems to be the dominant theme is that they want us to see Noah's righteous example and ask ourselves this question, does our life shine as distinct from the lives of those around us? Is there a fundamental difference between a attender or believer of Jesus Christ and a member of Fellowship Baptist Church than the unsaved people who walk across the street from them or work across the aisle from them? That's a question worth asking. Because if God enters into a covenant with somebody, it ought to fundamentally change them. Listen, I'm not just asking if whether or not you attend church while other people are sitting at home or watching a football game. And lucky for you, the Chiefs game is at noon and you're not missing it by being here unless I go long. I'm not asking that. Church attendance matters squat in the eyes of God. It's important to receive the truth of God, but it doesn't say something fundamentally about who you are as a Christian or not. Christianity is so deep, it cannot be just measured by your church attendance. It has to go deeper than that. And I think we have to ask ourselves, as people living in a wicked and an adulterous generation, is our Christianity deeper than skin deep? Is it obvious to those who look at our life? Is our attitude something that is fundamentally different than the attitude of our coworkers? Is our response when we are wronged and treated unjustly displaying heavenly integrity or a spirit of vengeance? Does our private conversation reflect worldly wisdom, which is gossip, slander, and divisiveness, or does it think the best things and reflect faith, love, and purity? Who wins the day? The desires of your heart or the promptings of the spirit? 
And I've recognized that it's not just the external things that mark the differences of Christians, but it's things that are so subtle. Like I said earlier, like the impulse when you are wronged. Isn't it Jesus who said, if someone hits you, turn the other cheek? If someone asks you to carry his stuff for a mile, carry it for two? You know what Jesus is saying there? He's not saying that we should just be taken advantage of and be, you know, a big speed pump, speed bump that people roll over. He's saying that as a follower of Christ, there's something fundamentally different about you and it shines the brightest when you are wronged and when you are taken advantage of because those who do not have the spirit of God living inside of them, they want to get their just desserts, every inch of it. But a follower of Christ displays the forgiveness and grace that Christ displayed at the cross when he passed over your sins. Noah was virtuous among his peers. This ought to sound familiar. Noah's covenant with God shined the brightest because he walked with God. Someone who is going to be saved on that final day is somebody that in this present life, to some degree, is walking with God. And I, I won't spend much time on this, but we saw in chapter number five that walking through with God was the means of escaping death and judgment on sin. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. We see that Noah in verse number 22, and this is the first time it's said of like four or five different times, that Noah was obedient to God's commands. Verse 22, it says, Noah did according to all that God commanded him. I don't know about you, I don't think I need to preach much longer because that gets all of us. All? That's the scorecard, y'all. At the very least, Moses is saying, hey, let me hold up an example of a man who obeyed it all. And we know it's not everything, probably. At the very least, he sinned in chapter number nine. But that's the goal that God has for your life. If you're in covenant with his son, Jesus Christ, he wants you to obey it all. And I could tell you right now, everyone sitting in the seats can name one or two things instantly. You are intentionally not obeying of God's commands. That's not how God wants us to live. If we are covenant with him and we're walking with him, can two walk together except they be agreed? No, we must be righteous and walk with God and obedient to his commands. See, here's the reality about walking with Christ and living as a faithful believer in the one who is in a covenant with God. Christianity is more than talk. Christianity is more than the verses you post on your Facebook wall. It's more than empty sentiments. Christianity is nothing else if it's not a lifestyle. It affects every square inch of your life. What is God driving at in verses one through nine, or sorry, verses nine through 12? He's driving at the fact that God preserves the life of those who serve him with their life. Second Peter will show us this in a minute. But here's what I know, before you mistake what I'm saying. Salvation is a future reality. Yay or nay? 
It is a future reality. It affects us in the now. It is a now and a then. But ultimately, it is a then. Because nobody here has tangible proof that you're going to be saved on the day of judgment. Or maybe you do. And, and here's the question, okay, so if, if salvation is a future reality and God's judgment is a future reality and I better make sure I'm ready for that day, what assurance do I have that I'm going to be saved on that day? I don't know about you, I want that. Anybody want that? Or, or you don't care if you're going to be saved on the final day of judgment. I want that. I hope you do too. I don't know about you, I think I would be pretty uncomfortable driving three hours to Wichita for a flight if I didn't have a ticket in my email inbox. So where on earth is our ticket? What's our assurance? What's our tangible proof that we will be in the ark on that day of judgment if we are believing in an invisible God who gives us an intangible salvation? Well, the New Testament tells us that the tangible proof of our salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, that doesn't help, Pastor Mike, because the Holy Spirit's invisible. <laughs> he doesn't give me a badge. Well, the Holy Spirit always leaves evidence. He always leaves evidence. In the New Testament, consistently says that the primary evidence that shows the presence of the Holy Spirit is faithfulness in this life. Faithfulness in this life is the best way to predict your fate on the day of judgment. I'm not saying that faithfulness in this life gains you salvation. But I'm saying faithfulness in this life is the best backward indicator of a salvation that happened in the past. Because God is so powerful, his Holy Spirit is so powerful, the, the New Testament makes it clear, it is impossible for the Holy Spirit to indwell somebody and it not to change them for their life. In fact, it's so impossible that the New Testament makes it clear that if somebody displays a life of consistent ungodliness, we have no reason to believe they will be saved on the day of judgment. In 2 Peter, Peter is writing to a, a group of people that are tempted to be swayed by a false gospel that really basically gives people license to do whatever they want. And Peter is trying to convince people that the false teachers they were believing in who uh, preached that you could just live however you want and it's all grace and you don't have to be changed, that, that P Peter's trying to preach to them and prove to them that what they were preaching is false and that if people followed that teaching, they themselves would be judged on the day of judgment. And he then begins to point his listeners to the example of Noah among his peers. And he makes this point here. He says, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them in the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly and deliver just or righteous lots, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. 
For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And here's Peter's conclusion. And I think this is how he thinks we should read Genesis 6. He says, the Lord knoweth how to deliver who? Who? The godly out of temptations. He's not talking sinful temptation, y'all. He's talking the day of judgment. And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Listen, I understand this. As your pastor, I am so fallen, it would be embarrassing if you knew how fallen I was. I'd like to think I match up to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, but I sure ain't perfect. I battle sin just like you do. We all fall short. We all have moments that if you took a snapshot of one day in our life, we would look like heathens. Am I alone in this? Or are we gonna all be honest about ourselves this morning? All right, I'm so glad two of you are willing to be honest about yourselves. Are we in agreement that if you took a snapshot of one day or one moment, we would all look like heathens? All right, half of you. That's not what I'm talking about. Because if we took a snapshot of one day, all of us would look like heathens. Just like David did on the day he stood on his rooftop and said, give me that woman, I want to sleep with her. But the Bible says something different about David, doesn't it? It says that David was a man that was after God's own heart. Which shows us that, that this faithfulness, this godly character that the scripture is pointing to as an evidence of salvation is not what you look like in the snapshot of a moment, but what you look like in the trajectory of your life. Because here's the reality. You can fake being righteous on Sunday. You can't fake a life of faithfulness. You can't fake it. And so here's what the Bible says. That the evidence of those who will be saved on that day of judgment is those that in the trajectory of their life are faithful to Christ. In the moment they look wicked, but they repent and turn to Christ. They're in a posture of repentance and faith and they endure to the end. What does Jesus say? For those that endure to the end shall be saved. How do we respond to what Peter is saying that the Lord delivers the godly from judgment and he delivers the ungodly to judgment? We need to recognize this morning, and this is a heavy truth, that our works don't earn God's grace, but they sure are the evidence of God's grace. I'm gonna be as serious as cancer, so I'd appreciate if you gave me one serious moment, if you haven't cared about a word I said. If this is true, I don't know who you are, who this is true for, but there is no doubt someone in here who needs to be very concerned about where they're headed. No doubt there are parents in here who ought to be concerned where their kids are headed. As a pastor, I'm very concerned where some are headed. Because I don't just see snapshots, I see 
well, two years now, that's a decent amount of time, and I worry that there's nothing of verses 9 through 12 in folks who think they're saved. My friend, if you're saved, the Holy Spirit, he makes it obvious. He doesn't make you perfect, but he makes it obvious. That's why I have a lot of respect for Christians who, who live out this life for all of their days. You gray-headed or non-hair-headed people in our auditorium, I have a lot of respect for you. If you're living it now and you've lived it for 20 years, because you can't fake that. You can't fake what you look like on Monday. It's easy to fake it for an hour. But if our works are the evidence of God's grace, friend, I say this in love and kindness, there ought to be some serious concern. Serious concern. I'm not saying that as Christians we should judge people by the outside. Here's what the Bible tells us, that faith is one in, what are we placing our faith in? That's an indicator of our salvation. But how is that faith showing up in our lives? That's another indicator. So someone who's moral, but they believe in Buddha, they ain't saved. But someone who believes in Christ, it's gonna affect their life. It's not gonna make them perfect. I ain't perfect. Y'all ain't perfect. (laughs) But there's a trajectory. But can I say it this way too? My, My wife... Uh, and I have dealt at different times in our lives with struggling with the assurance of our salvation several years back. And the thing that made it so hard for us to be confident in our salvation was because we always over-evaluated the moment of conversion. But when you recognize, like, I'm living for Christ the best I know how, I'm clinging to him, I'm repenting and trusting him, I'm walking, I'm progressing even when it's way too slow, I have no fear about my salvation. Because that's a lot of evidence that piles up and says the Holy Spirit's in there even when I don't feel like it every day. So friend, if you're, if you're walking with God and you're progressing and you're living righteously though imperfectly, friend, that is a great assurance that when that day comes, whether it's now or it's at the end of your life, you will be with him on the day of judgment. Because if God saved Noah, Peter said, and God saved Lot, there's your example. (laughs) He wasn't perfect. If God saved those men who are righteous in their own way, in their own generation, praise God, he will save you. So have assurance. Have confidence that, yes, it is Christ who saves us, but it is the work of Christ that gives us confidence that he has saved us. And this should remind us, church, that we ought to walk with God in a way that produces holiness in our life. Christian, I just want to do the best I can to debunk the lie that you can live a life of faith and not show it. That's not what this church preaches. We must live out our faith. How else will our dying world know who to turn to for salvation and for help if we don't show it in our life? What's God's rescue plan? He saves by faith. He saves through the one who has secured a better covenant. 
But if we have placed our faith in that righteous man, Christ, it will change our life fundamentally. And Christian, you may be on your worst day today. You may be David on that rooftop. I want to kindly remind you that's not who you are. That's not your identity anymore. Stop it. Turn to Christ. Let his righteous judgment motivate righteous character. But if you are not in the ark, if you have no confidence in your salvation, repent and trust in Christ. And I would say this, because we all know people whose life contradicts their profession. Not their days, not their months, but their life contradicts their profession. Church, pray for those people. Pray for those folks. If they're your kids, if they're your grandkids, if they're your brothers or your sisters, they're your fellow church members, pray for them that God would grant them repentance according to the truth. Every head bowed and every eye closed, we must respond.